electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now and fast, the Fed hits the market with a 75 basis point rate hike and tells investors to prepare for another hike of one plus percent before the end of the year. Chair Powell also saying the Fed can't take its foot off the gas until inflation is under control. And if that causes the economy to tumble into a recession, well, that's the price we'll have to pay. The market's whipsawing in the final two hours of trading. The S&P finishing down 1.7 percent. Big losers. All those travel and leisure names that had been getting a bit of light. Nasdaq dropping almost 1.8 percent. Meta, Alphabet, Tesla, Apple all turning negative in the final hour. And the Dow falling more than 520 points. Shortly after the Fed decision, it was higher by 315. Treasuries also whipsaw action. Take a look at the moves in the two-year, ending the day above 4%. And then there's the dollar. The Dixie once again hitting a 20-year high. What a day. Welcome to Fast Money, everybody. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight, everything you need to know about the Fed decision and the ripple effects it will have on the markets, the economy, and your money. A full house right here at the NASDAQ. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Steve Grasso. What do we make of it, Tim? Well, I tell you what, it was a Fed that we didn't know how to interpret really where we were left. And, and we were all over the place in terms of the market. But the, the, the clear takeaway, and you saw it in the Fed fund futures. First of all, uh, we added a point to where we're going to be on futures be, between now and year end. We added another 25 basis points to the expectations through at least uh, after the next meeting, or excuse me, after this meeting. And, and bottom line here is this is a Fed that wants to get too restrictive faster than we thought, yeah. stay there longer than we thought before today. Uh, and if anything, one of the dynamics was real rates that may be actually positive at some point, and that's something that should scare people. You're trying to trade through today. Oof. During the day. Not pretty. I mean, we were talking about the whipsaw action. Yeah. That was not easy to deal with. It all worked out okay. I mean, like, I'm it here. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm one piece here, but I, I will tell you, I've been very focused on the NASDAQ 100. We talked about it last night on the desk, and I think that the fact that we saw Microsoft and Google, and we previewed this, really break down to new 52-week lows here and down about 18.5%, each one of them from their mid-August highs versus the S&P and the NASDAQ, which are down less. That, to me, is very troubling. Now, I was, trouble, uh, I was trying to trade some other things, some stuff, the GOVT, as it relates to rates as uh, the dollar. I think this dollar is about to pull back a little bit, too. And I think that is a function of growth, the, the function that we are likely to be in a recession in the not-so-distant future. But when you think about the NASDAQ really, really quickly here, I just think of Amazon and Apple. Okay, these are $4 trillion in market cap that are still 20% above their 52-week lows. And I said last night, we are going back to those 52-week lows. And when all of these major mega uh, cap names join the party, that's probably how we get there. I think the question here in this kind of environment is, are these market giants, right, the leadership, quote-unquote leadership, meaning the biggest weights in the market, not necessarily the, the biggest percent gainers at this point, uh, but the biggest weights in the market. In this market environment, rates going higher, is that, quote-unquote, defensive, which had been the belief before? Used to be. Used I think to be. it used to be uh, defensive. It's not defensive anymore. Yeah. But if you touch on what Dan said, I don't think the Dixie can go lower with the Fed with its foot on the gas. So if, the, if that doesn't go lower... Then energy well, the goes lower. Trade too versus other currencies. I mean, the euro, exactly. right? With the so, in the euro. So I think that it's almost uninvestable. If you are questioning, do we hit June lows? We're going for June lows. The question is, how low do we go? I'm thinking 3,300, Feb 2020. 
3,300. 3,300. And there's people, there's yeah. people, by the way, who are putting lower, you know, we're just traders, right? So there's people that are putting a lower gauge on where they right. think this market can go. People have said 2,800. Let's just talk about where we're starting, 33. Yeah, Karen. So, as always, I'm kind of perplexed by how the market reacts to what Powell says. I mean, the, the, Steve and I were talking before the show, just the hinted hint of anything dovish. We had that big rally, and then he turned around, That you know, it sounded like higher for longer and recession be damned kind right. of was what, what I took from it. That, that made for a, what, 750-point swing? It's sort of amazing to me because what did we expect going in? 75 basis points seemed to be the overwhelming highest likelihood event. Sure. That's what happened. I think the hawkish tone was not surprising, Mm -hmm. right? Now, there was, Tim touched on some of the other things that were a little more hawkish, but it's interesting to me that the market seemed to be defensive and not really taking a lot of sides going into this, and yet we had a 750-point move intra-hour, maybe, that's kind of amazing to me. I step back. I don't think that things have changed all that much, right? We knew he'd be 75. We don't know what the next one will be. And so I don't really know what's different, but the market has moved a lot. But, but don't, and so I don't try people, not to trade so much on that. Don't people, don't all of us want up markets? I think in general, there's, there's a lot of bears, but bears make money in a very narrow window in the market. Everyone makes money when the market goes up. So we're all trying to be Pollyannish about when is he going to cut rates? And that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Well, right, I, but that wasn't, I'm sorry. Anyway, I, no, but I mean, that's the reason why people keep holding on to any little iota of dovishness, because we want to see Apple go to 200. I think there's a lot of people out there, Steve. When I look at positioning, it, it, yes, people ultimately want markets to go higher unless you're a short seller, and this is a great environment. Look, the volatility, I've mentioned this. We've had nine plus or minus of 8% moves in the S&P since the beginning of the year, and they've, on some level, they've been at very key and very clear levels. So I, I just think that the, the positioning and the defensiveness in the market is a function of a lot of people, and we talk about this all the time, not seeing a major pullback in demand. We can talk all we want about the Fed is doing, but one of the key dialogues and one of the questions that was addressed to the Fed three different ways today is, are you going to wait and see the impact of your, fake, your, your Fed hikes? And I said this last night, talking about 300 basis points of hiking uh, in seven months. We've never done that before, uh, at least until you go back to the mid 19 well, 80s, when, yeah. when, when rates were at 12%, not zero. So the percentage change off of this is, is something we've yeah, never and, seen. You know, to Steve's point, you know, prior to the 2020, this, this black swan pandemic uh, recession that we had, the prior two recessions, you know, we had bear markets that were extended bear markets. It wasn't a four-month bear market like we had in 2020. So again, I'm just going to keep saying this. The S&P 500 got cut in half from the highs in March of 2000 to the lows in uh, October of 2002 and from the highs in November in 07 to the lows in, uh, you know, April of 09. You know, so, I, I mean, think about this. You know, we're down less than, or, you know, around 20% or so, and we haven't even had the recession yet. And the difference now is that we were easing monetary policy in both of those instances the whole way. Interest rates were on their way to zero. Now interest rates are going the opposite way. The one thing, and the, I guess this is the answer to your question, Mel, and I'm just going to give it to you. It's the answer to you here, <laughs> is that valuations haven't reset. Right. I, wait, I disagree. I disagree. There's a huge bifurcation to get to that down 20 average. 
right? You've had some expectations that have been very much reset. Right. So you didn't watch the right? show last night? I actually did. So you remember Zuccardi's tweet? We just said that the no. 490 of the bottom, you know, weighted stocks have a, a PE multiple about 14. And the top 10 that make right. up nearly 30% of the weight of the index of 500 stocks have a PE of about 25. So that's why I just think that until Apple and Microsoft and Google, until they but have that moment. what about the other moment, 496? The, they are priced for recession right now. But don't but valuations. Don't we need the others to be priced for recession as well? Or can we go to a recession without having that reset in the biggest cap tech sales? No, we can't. And, and when you look at the multiples relative to history, we're still expensive. I mean, this is the part of this that I haven't heard anybody talk about demand. I haven't heard Microsoft talk about impacts on enterprise. All we're talking about is a dollar that's stronger. All we're talking about are interest rates that are higher. And we're talking about a consumer that still has a job. Do you think that's where we're going to be in, in, in 18 months? I don't. All right. Uh, let's get to the man who is in the heart of today's action, our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman. He is live for us in Washington. Steve, good to see you. What's, uh, what's your take on this day? You know, I think that the Fed and Chair Powell, Melissa, delivered on the three themes they've really hammered for the past month. It's going to hike to a high level. It's going to hold at a high level. And what it's going to do is going to hurt. Uh, the Fed uh, historically raising rates 75 base points for a third time, forecasting more hikes to come boosted the outlook for the funds rate next year by a full percentage point to 4.6, slashed its growth outlook for this year to just 0.2%, as close to zero as they maybe ever get. There may come a time when the Fed stops and waits to see what impact its hikes have on the economy, like Tim Seymour was talking about. But Powell said, we ain't there yet. There is a possibility, certainly, that we would go to, go to a certain level that we're confident in and, and stay there for a time. Um, but we're not at that level. Clearly today, we're, you know, we're just, uh, we, we've just moved, I think, probably into the very, the very lowest level of what might be restrictive. And, and certainly in my view and in the view of the committee, there's, uh, there's uh, a ways to go. Maybe the most hawkish part of the press conference was when Powell said at the very end, he thinks it's likely the Fed actually hits that 4.6% rate. That number made the Fed's outlook more hawkish than the market, which had sharply adjusted its Fed outlook upward in just the past month. But it wasn't enough. The Fed out-hawked the hawks today, Melissa. There's also commentary, Steve, about how divided the committee was in terms of next steps. And I thought that was sort of an interesting glimpse into um, what the market is grappling with in terms of trying to figure out what is next beyond today. I I wouldn't think too hard about that, Melissa, because I think that the... um, uh, the way to play this is to just assume the Fed is going to be more hawkish than you thought it was going to be. That has been the better play for several months now. Um, yeah, you, uh, Seymour's exactly right. You've got to go back to somewhere uh, uh, 2000 and, uh, uh, sorry, 1980 to find a time when the Fed has done uh, uh, more, been more aggressive with rates. Um, look, uh, maybe that's a good way to look at it. Um, uh, Volcker raised rates by 10 percentage points in one six-month period. We're only dealing with 300. Wow. Three, um, three the, I guess, is the better way to the put it. The thing about this panel, Steve, interestingly, is I think that that largely they have been more hawkish than the Fed. And so the question is, what do you do from here for the, when, when folks here are, are out hawking the Fed and the Fed has finally come around to our thinking, Steve Grasso? Yeah, so, so but I have a question for Steve. So, Steve, when we look at unemployment, when you get an idea of where you think unemployment is, that it moves the needle for the Fed, did you come out of that meeting with any clarity? A little bit. Um, I think their, their number is understated if they really want the kind of slack that's going to be needed in the economy to bring inflation down in a 
classic uh, trade-off between unemployment and inflation. Um, I don't know if they have that chart in the back, guys, the one that the, the Fed's own unemployment forecast. Uh, they have it going up to 4.4%. That's less than a percentage point. Um, and, and, and I don't know if that's going to be enough to create the kind of slack. So the, the Fed essentially, by the way, is kind of forecasting a, um, a soft landing. Remember, it sees um, GDP next year, next year going to 1.2%, unemployment 4.4%. That's not really too shabby considering, and I think uh, Powell himself said that if that happens, uh, it will be a pretty decent outcome. He's not forecasting a recession per se, but when the Fed says 0.2%, you know, it's darn close to, to no growth at all. Is there any historical precedent, Steve, to, to look at in terms of Fed hiking interest rates and when unemployment ticks higher, what the lag effect is? Um, no, there's no there's no defined rule. Uh, in general, uh, there's a relationship between GDP and unemployment, but hard to find one between the Fed and this. Uh, uh, in general, uh, you get you get uh, the unemployment rate falling, uh, sorry, rising in the beginning of, of recessions, which is why a lot of people are reluctant to call this a recession. You know, Melissa, you ask a, a really great question I think leads to an important answer, which is there aren't really good analogs for what we're going through right now. You have a, 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 an economy that's still trying to find its legs uh, from the pandemic and coming back that way, still needs to put people to work to get back to where we were before uh, in some industries, uh, while at the same time it's dealing with uh, a really debilitating war uh, uh, in, in Ukraine and, and really dramatically having an effect on prices. There's a lot of adjustment to do. Um, I wish I could give you an all clear. I want to say, you know, certainly the two year is, is looks like a screaming buy if you think the Fed is going to go to four six and it's priced that in. But, you know, there's some possibility it may have to go higher than that and may have additional adjustment to do. I mean, if I could go home and take home, you know, four four point one percent on my two year, um, and let's say two points of that is real, I'd be very, very happy. Or even three points, sorry, if, if one point is real, I'd be very happy with that. I just don't know if you can sort of sound an all-clear alert on how, how high that yield is going to go. Hey, Steve, Seymour here. Um, isn't it, like, clear as day what the market's interpretation of the Fed was today? The curve inverted another 12 basis points. The long end rallied. The short end sold off. Um, the market fears that the Fed's pushing too hard. I think that's right. When you say too hard, though, what would you what would the market say if the Fed was backing off here, Tim, with with inflation doing what it did? I, I think the market is of two minds. It wants the Fed to do both things at once and it can't possibly do that. Right. The, the market wants the Fed to vanquish inflation. I guess they want the immaculate inflation vanquishing is what they want. Um, and it's not going to happen, Tim. You, I mean, I think right. what Powell is getting up there and saying, look, the only way to do this, there's only one. If that's what you folks want, which is what America is screaming for to bring inflation down. Well, there's only a couple ways to do that. One is to uh, uh, create slack in the economy. And that means raising the unemployment rate and reducing mm -hmm. economic growth. You can't do it any otherwise. You can't you can't walk away without your hands dirty on this one, Tim. Yeah, comment, not question. So just simply. But the, the Fed talks about bringing inflation down slowly. So why can't they move a little slower now after they've been very aggressive? That's, that's all I'll say. I they think that's a, great, it's a great question. I'll just answer it very quickly, which is that I think the Fed believes there's some efficacy in front-loading this, getting it done more quickly, and maybe it doesn't have to have as much pain on the back end if it brings forward and, and takes the medicine now. I think that's what the thinking is of the Federal Reserve. I'm not saying it's right. I just think that's their thinking. All right. Uh, Steve, always great to get your take on things. Pleasure. Steve Leisman.
Long day today. All right. So the message that Powell delivered was pain, right? More pain to be felt on Main Street, more pain to be felt on Wall Street. So where are we right now, Steve? I don't think we're feeling pain yet. The housing market has just started to correct. People associate their worth with the stock market and the, pri- and the worth of their home. The worth of your home hasn't taken a hit yet. The stock market has taken a hit, but to Dan's point, we're still way above where we should potentially be. So I think we're in the early stages of pain. Yeah. I'll just say, I, I thought when the market was rallying after a quick pullback, um, I thought that was equities telling us, okay, we see some conclusion here. They're going right. aggressive. Um, They're and, front loading. And, and, and right. that, I guess that wasn't the case. I, I think you get back to a couple companies that have announced in the last couple of days. Where do you want to be? I mean, look at General Mills today. I mean, the company basically gave you, uh, they raised their guidance. They said, this is an environment that's great for them. These are multiples that are going to trade expensive here. Kellogg's rallied in sympathy. Uh, some of these other names mentioned Colgate, Palmolive. That to me is still, unfortunately, the market we're in. There's there's a lot of trading to do in here, uh, but there are companies to invest in. So we're in that kind of market. Staples, Staples. cereal, and short-duration bonds. Yeah? Yeah, and utilities. I mean, listen, none of it's particularly attractive. And again, I think that when we think about markets and we think about how to find a bottom in a period like we've been in, you need some sort of capitulation. And again, we've talked about this. There are hundreds of stocks that have been cut in half. Many of them are down 60, 70, 80 percent or so. And that's what it feels like in a bear market. The problem is we are only down 20 percent from the all-time high on January 2nd of this year, right? And, And so a really short period of time. So we haven't had that pain yet in the stock market. I know if you own individual stocks, it is painful. If you own the indices, it is not. And so to Steve's point, if you haven't felt it in the housing market yet, down 20% after last year's gains in the stock market, you probably don't feel horrible yet. And I think the last piece of this puzzle is unemployment. When it ticks up, when we see four, and then we see it on the way to four and a half. That's when I think mainstream. Yeah, having a job is, yeah. is what it's all about. And, and, and it's not something that any of us feel good about. And I think the Fed's use of the word pain is kind of hard for some of us who are gainfully employed when you right. think about this. Yeah. Uh, let's get more reaction to this rate hike from Dennis Lockhart, former Atlanta Fed president. He held the post during the height of the financial crisis. Dennis, great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, pain was the message that Powell delivered. How much pain? And when do you, when do you think we'll see unemployment go above 4%? I mean, when it comes to the pain that we felt on Main Street and Wall Street, is that is that, you know, around the corner? I think it's uh, likely to start later this year if, if uh, the path of policy that they projected uh, it turns out to, to be executed, which is another 100 to 125 basis points by year end. Uh, I think uh, companies are going to begin to retrench a little bit in anticipation of a much slower environment and and going into 2023 you you could very well see the unemployment rate rise you know when you paint the picture like that dennis in terms of pain the pain of, of higher unemployment by the end of the year companies retrenching a world in which the two-year note is yielding north of four percent at this point it it doesn't sound like a soft landing scenario it sounds like recession is almost a foregone conclusion. Where do you stand on that, knowing now better what the Fed's policy trajectory is? Well, I don't think it's yet a foregone conclusion. But as as uh, Chairman Powell said during the press conference, uh, the higher for longer posture or, or, or stance of policy may very well mean that the, the chances, at least, of, of a mild recession, that's as far as he wanted to go, I think, increase. So I think he's, he's very sober in his recognition that it, 
may require uh, a, a recession of some kind in order to, to finally vanquish, as Steve Leisman said, vanquish inflation. Mr. Lockhart, it's Karen Feinerman. Thanks for being here. Let me ask you, do you think the Fed, given all the data that they have, do you think they're doing the right thing? Well, it's always a compared to what <clears throat> question. Um, compared to the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's co compared to, to a, 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 an alternative scenario of some kind. I think they're doing the right thing because I think the fundamental point that Jay Powell has made is that over the long term, if a central bank does not get inflation under control, everyone suffers. And then you have to come back and try to uh, fix the problem with harsher measures at a later date, and then the suffering is deeper. So they're presented with this inflation problem. They're going to deal with it. And I think uh, the policy path, the policy stance is what is required. Yes, I'm, I'm very supportive. Is there any fear, though, on your part, Dennis, that the Fed, that we just have not seen the impact of these rate hikes flow through to the economy? We haven't seen the effects of, of balance sheet um, flow through to the economy yet either. And, and, and when it does hit, it's going to hit really hard. I think that's possible because there's always lags. And, and the one metaphor for this is the, the uh, risk of oversteering. And, and you've heard this before, but it's the ocean liner and you're the captain and you're turning the wheel and nothing is happening. <laughs> and so his tendency is to oversteer, steer. in this case, the Fed doing that with, with limited tools against a complex picture of, of inflation. Mr. Lockhart, inflation, what part of this troubles you the most and, and just timeline on where are we turning the corner? I have been focusing on the shorter term measures of inflation month over month. And I've been focusing more on core and various indications of core inflation, which gets to the underlying inflation that the Fed really cares about. And at least the CPI last month, the underlying, uh, that is core inflation month over month, uh, doubled effectively. So it, it showed, as Powell, I think, portrayed, uh, the, you know, we're not seeing real convincing evidence that inflation is coming under control. Dennis, we've got to leave it there. It's always great to get your take and analysis on things. Dennis Lockhart, we Thank appreciate you so much. it. All right, so, so now what, Dan? I mean, if by the end of the year we're starting to see unemployment tick higher. Did you watch last night's show? Because <laughs> you should know. I mean, to quote our friend Guy, he's still our friend, right? He's still in Sicily, too. Yeah, okay, fine. Oh, yeah. uh, careful what you wish for, right? <laughs> I, I, and, and, and when you think about this, right, so if they want pain, then they may have Main Street pain. They might put us in a recession. They may not ha know how to get us out of that recession because we have some very unusual dynamics that have kind of added to this. We've just doubled the, 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 the size of the Fed's balance sheet over the last yeah. few years because of a black swan event. It wasn't because of the normal course of recessions or anything like that. So, again, I think that the probably... The, the logical higher bound of unemployment is not where we were pre-pandemic at three and a half percent. You know what I mean? It probably is somewhere at four percent. But again, I mean, um, you know, the, the recession that is coming is not likely to be one that they're going to be able to turn on a dime and go back to, you know, QT to QE to raise uh, to lower interest rates. I, I just don't know how to do that. So I have a question for Steve um, in terms of your forecast for February. The S&P forecast, thirty three hundred. Did I say February? 
February 2020. Yeah. You gave us an exact date, Steve, and we're going to come back. <laughs> on no, no, no. He meant the Feb 2020 that. highs, oh, the pre-pandemic. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. oh sorry, you. sorry, sorry. I thought you meant I by February. Which I, is I, I was actually going to ask for a bare aspirin because yeah. I, I didn't see that coming. Go ahead. But if we if we go to those levels, right. which is th- below what many people are, are you short the do you short the markets now? Like, how do you trade? Through that, so, that so is your belief for me, ultimately. the only thing that's a catalyst for the market to bounce before year end or or thereabouts is the midterm elections. So I, I can't. I don't think collectively on the this next desk, Fed meeting is a week before the midterm elections. Yeah, which which it could be politicized, but I don't think there's anything that I can think of because earnings are going to start to take a hit, margins are going to start to contract. So there's zero bullishness in me other than the uh, elections in November. And that's the only thing I could see that rallies the market. Or maybe a CPI print that cools off. No, it doesn't matter. Well, because we, had, we, know, we've, we know now. We know that it, the next month could be another jump like we saw July-August, right? Yeah, so I don't, we've learned our lesson. Right, but it could also come in cooler. Right. Which I, I, so you're saying what could maybe... No, I, th- I think you're right. The market could jump off of that, but as soon yes. as Powell and the Fed governors come out and say it means nothing, uh-huh. then the market but, sells But the right. message right, to me, Tim, that was entirely hawkish is they've got to go past it. He said uh, the economy doesn't work if there's not price stability. He talked about their dual mandate. He only leaned on one side of the mandate today. He didn't really talk about employment. He talked all about price mm-hmm. stability. They're going to go a lot farther than they feel like they need to. Coming up, minimizing Meta, the social media giant reportedly cutting costs, but will they, they trim to bring layoffs as well. We will bring what is down in store for the stock. And we're all over some after-hours action shares of KB Home. Lenar on the move after reporting. We'll bring you the numbers next. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money is back in two. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Fast Money. Meta and Google, the latest tech firms to start making cuts, according to a Wall Street Journal report. Meta looking to trim costs by at least 10 percent in the coming months, likely including job cuts due to restructuring and giving employees a month to reapply for internal roles. In a similar move, Google alerted a small number of employees that they have 90 days to find a new role at the company or face layoffs. For more on what this means for the tech sector, let's bring in Gene Munster. He's managing partner at Loop Ventures. Gene, good to see you. Um, Are you glad to to hear these companies exploring these cuts? Uh, Glad. Couldn't come soon enough. Obviously, the market narrative around profitability is one of the reasons. The second is that this hiring uh, bender that especially Meta has been on for the past couple years has been a concern. We are shareholders of Meta, and that has been a concern. I just want to quickly put that into perspective, is that they grew headcount 23% last year. 
they grew revenue at 22%. Uh, that is rare that you grow headcount faster than revenue. If you're curious, that's uh, just over 50 hires per working day last year. You can't hire at that speed with quality. In the previous year, they grew at 30%. Google's hiring was a little bit more subdued at 14% and 16% respectfully over the past couple years, but their growth rate was much higher. So really, this conversation is about meta. And the core question that we have is ultimately how deep are these cuts gonna go? I think 10% is a starting point. I expect that if you fast forward two years from now and look at their peak where they were in terms of headcount, right now it's just over 71,000, I think we'll be probably 15% plus below that. And I think that that's a, a good thing. I think as much as I believe in the metaverse, I think some of that needs to come from their uh, reality labs. And I think that that's gonna be good for profitability. Hey, hey, Gene, so um, obviously you're very focused on consumer internet names, and we're starting to see some cuts here. And we've been seeing cuts in tech, I, I guess, for months now, but this is a big chop. This is at least 8,000 jobs. When you think about some of these enterprise SaaS companies, right, that sell licenses for a whole host of different services, is this the quarter that we're going to start to see? Microsoft didn't confirm it last quarter. Are we going to start to see some weakness in enterprise demand? Because I think this is one of the last pieces of the puzzle here for mega cap tech. I, th I think so. I think Microsoft in particular is probably the one, you know, they, they hinted to it. They talked about pausing uh, additions. I do think that the enterprise is going to, to slow. We've talked a lot about the consumer. Why do I think that the enterprise ultimately slows? Is the enterprise at some level, most of the time, is driven by the consumer. It, it has that, you know, uh, the, the second, third derivative uh, leads back to the consumer. It just takes longer for that to happen. And it doesn't need to mean it doesn't for these cuts to come from some of these bigger companies or for other companies like Microsoft. It doesn't mean that Microsoft's revenue needs to fall off the cliff. That's unlikely, just given their subscription nature of the business, like you mentioned. It's more likely that that growth rate just dips a little bit, and you just simply don't need as many people. And I think that um, this uh, the recession here, we'll call it a recession. I think is given an opportunity for a lot of these companies to look around and and also. Uh, right size relative to revenue and also relative to productivity because things kind of got a little bit off the rails over the last couple of years on the, on the productivity front. Gene, thanks for your time. Good to see you. Gene Munster, you. Loop Ventures. Um, so which big cap tech stock do you think is most vulnerable, Karen, in terms both. of in terms of a correction um, or being more in line with a market multiple? Something that has a higher market multiple, I would say. For me, you know, Alphabet's my biggest position. So I think the market at market multiple, and if you back out the cash below market multiple, is a good place to be. Now, clearly, you know, that's not been the right place to be for the last couple of months. But I do, I do like the idea of cost cutting there mm -hmm. and Meta. They're somewhat different stories, of course. But, you know, they've had revenue growth. All of them have tremendous revenue growth. And the gross margins are so gigantic that you can, you can hide a lot of expenses when you do that. They can't do that anymore. Revenue is clearly not growing as fast. So this is the next thing to do. I'd much rather have revenue growth. But uh, these are still fantastic businesses. Well, when you look at Meta, they have a PR problem. They, they, they still don't know how to narrate who they are. They're spending a ton of money to try to figure out who they are. But when the stock is down 57% year to date, it's hard to say that you would still sell it. But when you look at a chart on a technical level, I run out of supports for Meta. And we, we remember when it came public, the ascent that the stock had, which means that it can descend a heck of a, a lot longer than we're all prepared for. All right. We're watching uh, shares of Salesforce in the after-hours session. The company just saying that they expect to hit $50 billion in revenue by 2026.
What year is it? Hmm. What year? It's 2022. Sometime in the future. Um, 2026 is the forecast for $50 billion. It's up 2.5%. We are saying in the break, do they know what's happening this quarter or the next quarter, let alone in four years. Yeah, so yeah. consensus estimates was for $47 billion. I mean, this is kind of a, a rounding error if you think about it. So, uh, again, maybe it's shorts covering. There's a lot of bearishness near term in some of these things. So you like to hear some of these longer term guidance. Um, but, again, it really speaks to what is their plan. They're very acquisitive. They will make – they will probably get to $50 billion um, in revenues in, t- in fiscal year 2026. It just depends how they get there. But this is one of those companies that we just talked about enterprise, and Gene told us about the second derivative. I mean, mm-hmm. software, you know, at some point y- y- you can pull back. And you can cut back. And, and getting back to you know Google Meta, I mean, Google, I, I, I think, has priced in a pullback. I, you know, think about ad sales. I think the biggest, the underperformance, Karen, of Google to me is about ad sales and, and some underperformance to TikTok. And that, to me, is pricing in some of the cyclicality where I don't think Apple and Microsoft have. All right. There is a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Getting grilled. The options pits are sizzling with some restaurant activity. And traders could be betting one name gets pride. Plus, stocks dropping as the central bank hikes rates yet again. And the move has one of our traders buying something for the first time ever. A Fast Money Trade School is in session. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alerts, shares of Lennar on the move after reporting that it beat bottom line estimates in Q3, but revenues fell short. KB Home also turning in a report with mixed results. Diana Olick has been looking over these results. Diana, what are the details here? Well, Melissa, it was, as you said, a nice beat for Lennar in Q3. EPS coming in at $5.03 a share versus estimates of $4.88. Revenue a little light, though, at $8.9 billion, but still up 29% year over year. And revenues were higher primarily due to a 13% increase in the number of home deliveries and a 15% increase in the average sales price to $491,000 from $428,000. That was surprising to me. Now, Lennar Chairman Stuart Miller said supply chain constraints while improving still continue to limit deliveries. New orders were down 12% year over year, but starts were still consistent, driven by adjusting prices and incentives. Miller also said sales have clearly been impacted by rising interest rates, but there remains a significant national shortage of housing, especially workforce housing, and demand remains strong as we navigate the rebalance between price and interest rates. Lennar's inventory of finished homes, though, and homes under construction rose 24% from the end of the last fiscal year. And, Melissa, I see that as a red flag. What, what is this talk about the rebalance of price because of interest rates when 
prices have gone up. I mean, well, I assume so that's, that's why what you really were surprised. Didn't, yeah, that didn't make a whole lot of sense yeah. in the report, to be honest, because they had prices up 15 percent and they were talking right. about, you know, adding incentives, buying down the mortgage rate and potentially lowering prices. And in the home builder sentiment report earlier this week that we got, they reported one quarter of builders said they were lowering prices. So then you see this average sale price for Lennar going up. You have to wonder, are the more expensive homes selling and that's skewing the average higher? Or what is it exactly? Because it doesn't sound like they're lowering prices, but then he's saying, well, we're rebalancing with prices. So, yeah. Questions. All right, Diana, thanks. <laughs> Diana Olek. All right, Steve, so we were just talking about how Main Street's going to feel pain and what is holding up is housing. And if he's going to break the back of inflation, that's got to come down. Sounds like they're selling, <clears throat> they're selling less homes for more money. Uh, th- that was my takeaway right there. So you think you would think that the inflation in the housing, the actual price of the home has to be coming in or sooner, sooner or later will be coming in, which means that their bottom line will be less. You cannot think in a rising rate environment that they are going to earn more money going forward. Right. So what does that mean for a Home Depot? Because you like to go yeah, over there I, literally I, and, and trade-wise. Look, I do. I do. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a junkie for the Black & Decker tools and whatnot. But you, you, you have a dynamic with the home builders where I do think um, you're going to have to see price compression. Rates going higher, even in the mortgage market, also affects what you can spend on a house. Um, I, I, look, home Depot is trading just above a market multiple. It trades at a premium to lows. I'd rather own lows in this environment. I think they both can pull back more. Again, I, I've mentioned 250 is an area I want to start nibbling some more. I am long Home Depot, but I don't need to own more here. I, I think there could be more pain. Karen, home improvement retail? Yeah, I own some. I would like to buy more. Uh, I think they're both great companies. I think that the sentiment around it right now is pretty terrible, but the valuation has come in a lot. And I think about, I mean, ultimately, uh, these are great businesses to own. I have more to buy. Coming up, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. One restaurant stock sizzling higher in the last few months, but options traders could be betting this one gets burned. The details next, plus longtime listener, first-time buyer, one of our traders scooping up something that they have never bought before. A Fast Money Trade School is coming up right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Darden restaurants falling ahead of tomorrow's after-the-bell earnings. The stock for the month still up 6%, but one option trader is betting that Darden's about to quickly erase those gains. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, Darden traded 18 times the average daily put volume. Puts outpacing calls by 3 to 1. The single biggest trade, the October 130, 115, 1 by 2 put spread. Trader bought 1,000 of the 130s, sold 2,000 of the 115s, spending $2.40 a share, making a bet that it could drop about 13%, risking about $240,000 in total. The max profit here would be about one and a quarter million if it declines that much. Um, By the way, we all thought, or I thought, that they still owned Red Lobster. They do not. Private equity owns Red Lobster. So for all of you who associate the two, disassociate. Grasso, what's the trade here? So actually, before it sold off after hours, the the chart looks okay to me. So I would use the 200-day moving average, which is right where the stock stopped after hours, so call it 131. Use that as a base if you want to try to nibble. But remember the three-day rule. If this stock gets hit now, I would wait a couple of days till the stock stabilizes. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, it's not every day one of our traders buys something for the first time ever. The new Mm. buy and why next. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Closing at session lows after the central bank's 75 basis point rate hike today. The Dow dropping more than 500 points. 
And Karen made a notable buy on the heels of this Fed decision. It was the first time she has ever done this in her career. So, Karen, what did you do? Yes, it sounds so crazy. I have never bought one-year treasuries before. And yet, you know, when, when Powell came out with his decision and things really started to move, I thought, all right, this is really good. The one-year yielding 410 as an alternative to cash, I mean, that seems like a great thing to own, right? And then I also, of course, looked up the tax implications. I should have known this. State and local taxes, you don't have to pay. You have to pay federal. So I literally never done this before. I didn't even know how to do it. I figured, all right, can't be that hard. People do it all the time. Called up J.P. Morgan. Of course, it says Jamie there. They're like, yeah, he's busy, <laughs> but can we help you? And, you know, so I, I mean, I think I'll probably hang on to it for a year. But it just seemed to me that that seems out of whack. Yeah. Right. We had Michael Schumacher on yesterday from Wells Fargo, the head of macro strategy, and he mm-hmm. said by short duration because the yields are so good right now. Yeah. And I think you want to stay short duration and yeah. you could probably stay short duration also in 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 credit and, you know, floating rate notes and, and places where I think you're buying good credits uh, and even muni bonds. So I think there is we, we've started to talk about this. This is a whole new asset allocation approach that it, it makes a lot of sense. Forget div stocks, buy buy stocks. But a laddered approach to the short end of the Treasury curve to me makes a lot of sense because I think we still don't know. It's back to our Fed conversation, how quickly and how long. But just think about what we always talk about on this desk. When do other markets or other spaces or other things become more attractive than the equity market? You have a value investor on the trading desk who's never done something before. This is the level where other things have piqued her curiosity to get out of, or not, I shouldn't say that, but there's a finite amount of funds that you are investing and you've allocated them to someplace other than equities for the first time ever. I think that's probably a worthy note for the market as a whole on a macro level. Yeah, but isn't your portfolio going to look like a, like a Google ETF soon or Alphabet ETF? You just keep buying on the No, see, down. as it goes down, it yeah. becomes less the portfolio. And they own a lot of treasuries. Well, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and you know what's funny? And they own a lot of treasuries. I actually bought yes, the GOVT, which is the iShares uh, U.S. Treasury ETF, which actually has short and longer term. And I, and I just think that's a good way to also express that in an easier fashion. All right, coming up. Some stocks just aren't worth the trouble. Our traders lay out the names you should be steering clear of in this environment. Their picks when Fast Money returns. Back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money with fears about where the market is heading from here. We asked our traders if they have any stay away stocks, names that are just no touch right now in this environment. So, uh, Dan, I feel like your list might be long, but let's start with you. Here. I'm just going to give you one here, people. It's only an hour show. Um, XRT, uh, retail in general. Again, if, if uh, back to school doesn't materialize the way that a lot of retailers were hoping last August when they reported, um, I think it's going to be a highly discounted holiday season. It's going to start early and often. So I just don't want to be long these stocks. Are. Yeah. Karen? Yeah, for me, it's the travel space. And it's just, you know, a combination of recession. If people have less disposable income, they've already traveled a lot. We knew there was a bubble. And a lot of these companies, the two that we have on the screen, they raised so much debt. They had to during the pandemic. Wasn't their fault. But that debt is starting to come due and they're going to have to roll it over at much higher rates. Yeah. We're talking about duration in a portfolio, and, and to me, I don't want to be in long-duration assets, and that, to me, is high multiple tech. I don't want to be in heavy-duty growth stocks, and, and, and at some point, 
great companies uh, that are these companies are worth nibbling on. But it's not time. And, and the market's not rewarding companies that are not profitable. Um, and so the semiconductors. So SMH, if you look at this, and I talk about this all the time, but um, not only do I think some of these very high-quality companies can go lower, doesn't, it's not an indictment on what's going on with semiconductors. They, they're becoming commodities in a good way, not in a bad way. But the other part of this is if you look at the chart and if you look at the relative underperformance of semiconductors to the S&P, I think you can go back to probably the first quarter of 2019 just on that relative performance, which means that this group has another 25% or more to go lower. So wow. again, I just don't think you have to chase them here, even though there's so many great companies in there and we know what's going on in the world, but not now. Yeah. XLE, energy. So for me, could you have scripted a better scenario for energy to rally? No. The st- XLE is up 36% year to date. Now, while I think the dollar is moving higher, what does that mean for energy? I said in the beginning of the show, it's an inverse correlation. Energy has to move lower. If we had the last five years, energy did nothing. Now it's outperformed. I mean, it's overdone. They can still make money, though, if energy goes lower. They can still make money. The break-evens for a lot of these companies are a lot lower than they used to be. But when people are uh, transferring money out of, it's a finite basis. You have to take your earnings, put them into something else. Could you split screen us? Can we get split screen right Why now? Are you yeah, now? these companies are running the most efficient. Yeah. They're, they're running the most efficient they've like, ever been. And, and with the dollar up 25%, and we know what the impact of the dollar is, do you think the dollar is going to do another 25 There it is, Steve. Yeah, yeah you let's go. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but I, again, I think the free cash flow that we've heard from these companies, the payout levels, these are companies that are not necessarily going to grow at all costs. And, and if, if demand on oil pulls back aggressively, that's fine. But there's nothing in the world right now, and the headlines out of Russia today are particularly scary, that changes the global uh, and the geopolitics around oil. I think those are already in the mix. And when you look at what was the major headwind for a lot of these fossil fuels, it was ESG investing. I think everyone became agnostic once they found out that they could only earn a profit in buying energy stocks. They ha- but they're going to have a come to Jesus moment when this all ends and people sell their fossil fuels. I think you need to lock in profits while it's Germany, Germany's closing down businesses. They're closing down production. They're, they're closing down factories because they can't power them. Um, and what are they going to power them with? Nuclear. They they're might, not. They they're, yeah, might. no, I do. That. They only tax these energy companies. ESG means nothing if you can't turn if you can't turn on your lights. And, and to me, that's the world's not ready to fully embrace a decarbonized world. By the way, Chevron and Exxon are telling you we're going to be carbon free by 2030. Right. Thank you. Up next, final trades. <laughs> final trade. We made it to the end of the show. No one made fun of my shirt. Victory. Uh, Tim Seymour. You beat me, too. I was going to say, you really kept us in line. You kept the players you know, playing within the lines. Great job. McDonald's. I, I think people are playing down to McDonald's, and, and that's actually a good thing for McDonald's. I think some of their cost base might be getting Mickey D's near all-time high. Stay there. Chairwoman. Yes, and I'm wearing a red challenge flag. Um, so my final trade, what I bought today, the one year. Never thought I'd say it. Dan. Do you hate that I just kind of agree with you on that, too? We've agreed on a few things. Over Netflix. The you can they call usually, flag they usually that kind of work. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like that Steve. What we talked about during the show, Darden Restaurants. This one's going to be a little volatile for the next couple of days. Use the 131 level to buy some. If only I had a whistle. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and 
starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.